They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men, Power Trip of Wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am Chad, and today our episode is brought to you by Bombas, the mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to be better. And with that being said, I'd like to bring in my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. John A., how you doing? Hey, yo, Chad. I'm doing pretty good, man. How you doing? Doing very well, and tonight on the program, we have the Scrap Daddy himself, Scrap Iron, Adam Pierce, joining us, and uh, what a great, fun conversation with Adam Pierce. Uh, obviously, if you know anything about uh, the Scrap Daddy, you know uh, you got to be uh, on your heels and ready to go, and uh, man, I don't know about you, Primetime, but Chad was a little intimidated. I know you were. I, I were. I wasn't, but uh, I definitely know you were. <laughs> Only I say that because, uh, like I said, yes, he, he keeps you on your feet, and um, you got to be ready to go because uh, you can't sit around and, uh, you know, throw out just uh, some, you know, dumb question about this or that and not be ready for literally the most like legit answer you could possibly imagine. So, it was a lot of fun. But uh, the cool thing with Adam Pierce uh, that we got to talk about. And that was his time, well, it is his time that he spends down in NXT as a guest trainer because I know you and I have had a ton of conversations where this guy should be maybe the head trainer. I don't know if he should just be a guest trainer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, with his experience level, I, I don't even think he should even be in NXT, to be honest. Like, he just really just shoot. I think he should be on the WWE roster. I mean, he's not that old. He's in great shape. He's a great wrestler. He's an old-school mentality. I, I just think Scrap Iron, a.k.a. the Scrap Daddy. I think he's the man, but if he's going to be a trainer, I really, if you look at just his area of expertise, his history of the business, everything, he could probably be the head trainer down there at NXT. Oh, totally, totally. And you see, uh, you know, you get those great names, those great workers, those great wrestlers linked to NXT, like William Regal, you know, and you see some of the other guys that they've had uh, down there. And even if you look at the, you know, the current cast of Tough Enough, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Booker T is a trainer and uh, Billy Gunn is a trainer. And I saw even Lita is a trainer. But, you know, you think about a guy like Adam Pierce who's still in that rare case or rare breed of, you know, he still does all the traveling to the shows and he still keeps himself in great shape, you know, and he's still fantastic in the ring that he's got so much to offer to that next crop of guys. And maybe, you know, he doesn't have the mainstream name that Booker T does going as a head, you know, a, head, a trainer on Tough Enough. But my God, the uh, the proof is in the pudding when it comes to Scrap Daddy's uh, model of work. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. He, he's awesome. But I mean, the training part is just one thing. And but his actual wrestling career was great. It just if you just look at it, if I can move along here a little bit, the 
best of seven, which actually ended up being the best of nine, the seven levels of hate against Cole Cabana. If somebody doesn't have that documentary with with all the matches, of course, on there, but if somebody doesn't have the seven levels of hate, you got to go out there and get it. I don't care where you get it, but you got to see it. Unbelievable stuff. And to showcase how great of a wrestler he is, how great of a psychologist he is, how great of a heel he is, just go all around. He's awesome. And then, of course, the TNA stuff, which is always a hot when you're talking about Scrap Daddy. It's it's for some reason it just makes uh, everyone a little mad at TNA. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, you know, I found myself, uh, you know, captivated by uh, the quick story about the TNA gut check because uh, all I'm gonna say is uh, definitely, um, you know, you love as a fan when you actually get worked. And uh, definitely you'll enjoy that story because he completely caught me by surprise because uh, John and I have been talking amongst ourselves since that gut check. Like, why wasn't this guy, like, why weren't they jumping over themselves to sign this guy and make him one of the, uh, you know, those top new, you know, breed talents in TNA that they could have really thrown the, the rocket behind. But uh, he'll put that to rest. And he talks about, you know, his time as a, uh, you know, as a job guy in the WWF. In the late '90s, a great, uh, you know, great story about how he got his name. Um, then, and it's, just, it's a great talk with a uh, a great member of the pro wrestling world. And uh, John, I know it's, you know, definitely one of your favorites. You and the Scrap Daddy uh, definitely have some fun exchanges that I'm sure might be uh, more entertaining than you and I talking right now. But uh, before we throw it to the interview, what else can you say about the Scrap Daddy, and what else can you tell the fine listeners of this program? Before I get to the Scrap Daddy, I just want to say subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback on what you think. Also, on Facebook, you can like us, Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Also, check us out on the Twitter machine, at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Always got good stuff on there. And, of course, our website, tmptofwrestling.com that is tmptofwrestling.com and hey one thing you gotta do is go to bombas.com slash tmptow that is bombas.com slash tmptow 20% off your order which is just awesome and on top of that you buy one pair they donate a pair to the homeless as a lot of people may not know socks the number one requested item at homeless shelters so Definitely giving, and you get back the greatest athletic leisure sock of all time, as many of the wrestlers that we've been giving socks to have let me know, such as Austin Idol, Ace Steel, Bushwhacker Luke, of course, Magnus, and of course, of course, the Scrap Daddy Adam Pierce that is the most comfortable sock he's ever worn in his life, and that he will never go back to another pair of Bombas. So guess what? Now i got to send him more Bombas. And now he's going to go to bombas.com slash tmptow for 20% off of his order. That is bombas.com slash tmptow, all lowercase. Now let's send it to the scrap iron himself, scrap daddy, Adam Pierce, for one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. Tonight on a very special episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling, we are privileged to spend a few minutes chatting with a man who is a five-time former NWA champion and single-handedly made the NWA title relevant again. 
And at this year's Cauliflower Alley Club convention in Las Vegas, he will be given the honor of joining an elite group of members in the prestigious NWA Hall of Fame. He has wrestled all over the world and is one of the most respected wrestlers in the business. He is the legendary Scrap Iron, the Scrap Daddy himself, Adam Pierce. Thank you for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, I appreciate that uh, incredible intro, even if it's a bit overstated, but I'll take it. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. And honestly, you say overstated, I say understated. My co-host told me to copy edit it a couple times because I was going on and on and on and on. But with that being said, what are your thoughts on going into the NWA Hall of Fame at the Cauliflower Alley Club this year? Uh, to be real, to be real uh, transparent and frank with you, it's it's insanity. But uh, again, sometimes things happen, and uh, I'll chalk that up as one of the good things in life. When uh, when you initially found out, and with the Cauliflower Alley Club being, you know, the uh, the, the long-standing kind of backbone uh, professional wrestling is being a place where a lot of uh, the old timers can go and talk, and now. You know, there are a lot of fan interactions, and it's kind of become a big, you know, WrestleMania-style access event itself. Um, how do you look at an event like that and approach it? Um, is it just uh, is it just going to be another speech, or are you going to really take this and, uh, you know, pretty much give uh, everybody what they want, and that's going to be a nice, heartfelt speech from Adam Pierce? You know, I really don't know. Uh and I say that only because I really don't know exactly how they're going to present it. I know that it's obviously part of the festivities, and, and this year being the 50th anniversary of the Cauliflower Alley Club, there's so much going on. Um, and uh, so I guess I'll find out. I get into Vegas on Monday, and we'll we'll take it from there. But uh, if I've got to give a speech, then I shall give a speech. And being a former five-time NWA world champion, what's it like going into the NWA Hall of Fame with all the other multi-time and legendary champions? Well, I mean, to me, that's the part of it that that is a bit dumbfounding, if if that's the right word. I mean, I don't... uh... I don't think I'll ever, but I certainly don't in this instance consider myself in the same breath as a guy like Jack Briscoe or Harley Race or Ric Flair or Terry Funk. Uh, And then to be joining them, not just as, as, you know, past champions, but also to be recognized as as a quote-unquote Hall of Famer is is very surreal. Uh, And I think in a lot of ways the, the... the honor of it all, although I obviously know it's an honor, but the magnitude of what it actually means, I think it, it, it escapes me. And it's one of those things that I think will probably hit me down the line. Now, as um, we've interviewed Bruce Tharp, and he's really trying to bring the NWA back to prominence, and they're pretty much making a big name for themselves over in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And he said, and I totally agree because I brought it up to him, but I said that you single-handedly brought the NWA title back to prominence. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, and and it's it's always interesting to to hear other people's perspectives. You know, Bruce and I have a very interesting relationship in that I worked for Bruce a number of times as NWA champion previous to him becoming president of the NWA. And then when everything was unfolding between myself and Colt Gabbana in our Seven Levels of Hate uh series, I didn't exactly see eye to eye with Bruce Tharp in some of the ways that he wanted to change uh, and control what was happening in the National Wrestling Alliance, and and now we we sit here, I don't know, two three years removed from all of that, and uh, to be going into the Hall of Fame, and and in a lot of ways, 
because of Bruce. Uh, it's it's one hell of a roller coaster when you look at it that way. Now, speaking of the Seven Levels of Hate, which is a great, great documentary, for anyone out there that hasn't seen it, go out of your way to get it, a copy of it somehow and watch it because it's amazing. Now, can you talk about what it was like all, like being, you know, there's a star of the film, but also being behind the camera as well? Yeah, I think for me anyway, the, the film itself, uh, in, in notwithstanding the, the blood, sweat, and tears literally that went into making it, um, it was a labor of love, right? So you've got this story that that's uh, on one hand a, a pure wrestling story for for that fan who likes to hear wrestling stories and behind the scenes kind of things. It appeals to them, and and for the wrestling purists, the guys who are like the nuts and bolts of what happens in the ring. There's that for them, and and then there's a I think there's a human part of the story too, kind of the. Uh, the the actual working machinations of of what it is that brings drama into professional wrestling, and I think this this story is is one of those that the drama happening in quote unquote real life might have been more compelling than what was happening in the ring. And coupled with all of that in one nice package with a bow on top, made for a pretty uh, uh, successful film. So for me, again, bleeding, sweating, bumping, paying the price then sitting at a computer for hours and hours and hours on end editing just to get a 30-second piece, uh, and then to sell this thing all over the world and every 50 state, every state, every 50, what am I saying, every 50, every one of the 50 states. Uh, it's gratifying, man. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big deal. It was a lot of work, and it was well worth every second. And for those out there that may not know what seven levels of hate is, can you just uh, briefly explain the concept of it? Yeah, I mean, uh, on, on face value, what it is, it's the story of the, the feud between myself and Colt Cabana that spans or spanned uh, about a three-year period of time in, in each of our careers. But the backstory to all of that is that he and I go back to high school. Uh, we've known each other way before either one of us was involved in professional wrestling, so there's that part of it that kind of intertwines into what was happening inside the ring. And then, as I just alluded to a couple of seconds ago, the uh, somewhat uh, arduous drama that was happening between he and I and the NWA, which resulted in a bunch of uh, things happening with the story that, that we didn't see from the beginning, uh, kind of wrap itself up into a nice little package. You get a whole lot of wrestling, you get a whole lot of talking about wrestling, and you get a whole lot of talking about talking about wrestling. So it's interesting. What was it like adding two more levels of hate not too long ago? Almost making it the nine levels of hate with Colt Cabana. Yeah, I suppose uh, when when you look at it now, there there were nine matches in the series, quote unquote, uh, the initial seven, and then there was one a year after that, and then another one a year after that, uh, which was just this past December, which actually was my final independent professional wrestling match. So uh, it just made sense, you know, if you've got an audience and, and more importantly a promoter willing to pay for it, you sometimes go back to that well a couple of times and uh, we were happy to do so. Now speaking of cult, I just want to bring him up briefly, but uh, if you could talk about your old friend CM Punk, what are your thoughts on what he's doing with his career now? I think it's remarkable. I think uh, when you kind of look beginning, middle and end of what uh, would Punk's able, been able to accomplish, not just in wrestling but in general, you know, he's he's uh He's certainly someone who who knows what he wants and goes after it and is not afraid to cut loose those parts of his life that uh, are obsolete at that moment. So 
nothing but the best to him. I, I, I think uh, his foray into UFC, um, I hope, ends up as fruitful for him as he thinks it will. Now, speaking of Punk and his, uh, I guess, broken relationship with WWE, it's no secret that you've been working with NXT and you've been a coach, a trainer, a producer down there. Can you talk about your experience working with NXT? Oh, man, it's incredible. I think uh, anyone who's actively uh, watching the WWE Network and specifically the NXT product itself sees what the what the future of WWE programming has uh, and NXT and the talents therein, not to mention the incredible coaching staff and the people behind the scenes that make it such an incredible and fun place to work. Uh, they're doing what they need to do and, and really to, to take what was once almost a negative in the word developmental and, and turn it from, from this kind of uh, red-headed stepchild almost into a standalone and highly successful third brand under the WWE umbrella. Uh, you know, I've said it a million times, and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. It's an honor to set foot in that building, the Performance Center in Orlando. It's an even bigger honor and probably the biggest I've had in my two decades in pro wrestling to actually have my hands on uh, you know the future of, of what's tantamount to the, uh, the the business, the wrestling business in our country. It's huge. Honor. Could you kind of uh, could you kind of walk us through uh, what your thoughts were on the uh, the, the NXT uh, takeover specials and uh, the ones that you worked on specifically? Um, what the feeling was uh, backstage while that was going on because they absolutely paralyzed uh, the internet wrestling community um, the next day with the response that it got. Did you have that vibe backstage while those shows were going on? You know, I think the interesting thing is that everyone involved with the product for some time has had that vibe for a while, and it was really gratifying to allow that to come to the forefront and kind of turn loose this beast that everybody believes in behind the scenes and to have the avenue available to do it via the, the, uh, the takeover specials on the network to pretty much go out there and say, Hey, here, here we are world. This is what this is all about. Uh, and that night specifically, it was an incredible energy in that place. And it usually is, but that night even more so for whatever reason. And, you know, things clicked, and, and uh, Kevin Steen, or excuse me, Kevin Owens debuted that night, and of course there was a lot of hullabaloo and buzz about that going into it, so it just kind of you know, was icing on the cake of what ended up being a really, really awesome experience, not just for the people that were in attendance there at Full Sail University, but again, the wonderful staff and the people that bring it to life. Uh, and I think most of the credit, I think anyway, should go to the guys that are in there busting their ass in the ring. They're doing an incredible job. And who out of that group would you say has uh, stood out to you or maybe since your first trip down, if they're still there, has uh, shown you some of the most improvement? You know, I don't like answering that question only because I think it does a disservice to the other 75 or 80 talents that are in there busting their ass equally hard every day who maybe don't get the same opportunities to be broadcast worldwide. I mean, I could list the, the same list of names that everybody wants to praise, and obviously those people are in their positions for a reason. They, they bring something to the table. But, again, there are upwards now of almost 100 guys and girls in their performance center every day coming to work, training, uh, each with their own unique set of intangibles and skills that at some point hopefully will allow them to be the next big WWE superstar. 
And and whether that's a Finn Balor or a Kevin Owens or Sami Zayn or Hideo Itami or the list goes on and on and on. I mean, the cream, and it's cliche to say, but it's true. The cream rises to the top. And uh, I've just been fortunate to have been around these people before they got to NXT and now working with them in that system. Uh, the sky's the limit. And, and, again, not just for the names that everybody knows, but for the, the 75 or 80 that hopefully soon they will know. And then what exactly did you do for the, uh, for the, for the main shows? Um, were you just working basically as a producer? Were you, um, you know, what, what, were you, what was your, your daily uh, task for the, uh, the main show? What do you mean for the main show? For the like for the TV show, so it, it being down there for a trainer, um, I guess for non-TV. But what were you doing as the uh, the actual shows were were going on? Well, it's a, a lot of it's six one half the dozen of the other. You know, the the tasks that are that are at hand for a guy who's working as a coach or a trainer or an agent or a producer. I mean, really, that's a million things that that are encompassed by one hat. So obviously, when when the television taping's happening, there's people that need to be agenting matches and and producing for the television. So I was doing that, which is obviously different than nuts and bolts, hand to hand in the ring. Hope I'm understanding the question. Oh yeah, no, that's fine. It's kind of uh, I gotta say, it was, on my part, it was kind of asked a little jumbled, but uh, no, you got it. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> now speaking of the WWE, then the WWF. You worked there many, many moons ago in the, the late 90s. You worked some dark matches, and you were a, a, a young Scrap Daddy in the business. I guess pre-Scrap Daddy, you could say. Now, what was your experience working for the WWF then in the ni- late 1990s? That was a good time. I mean, at, at that period of time, we're talking 96, 97, 98. Uh, I think I did a little bit into 99. They were still doing what we then called enhancement matches or job matches, which basically they would bring a crew of guys in depending upon what area of the country they were in. Uh, and their sole job was to put over the guys that were being featured on TV. So, I mean, I did that, God, for two and a half, three years all over the Midwest and uh, on TV all the time and, of course, in dark matches too. And uh, it was an experience. Uh, my first one I was... Uh, 18 years old, so that was uh, that, that was eye-opening to say the least. Uh, my first match, working for the WWF, as you mentioned, it was called at that point, was a Monday Night Raw match uh, in March of 1998, I think. 97? I don't know. I have to go back and look at it. But yeah, I was a, I was a kid. Do you have any cool stories of being there at that time, or you know, maybe some backstage stories? You know, um, I mean, nothing really that jumps to the forefront, although I, I, for whatever reason, it seemed like any time I was booked for TV, I, Brian Pillman would ask me to stretch with him or help stretch him, which was cool, for, like I said, when you're an 18-year-old kid, just trying to uh, try not to step on any toes or piss anybody off. Um, some Just a really great locker room. I mean, the, the stories that you hear about guys like Owen Hart being fun-loving, I mean, I can corroborate that for the times that I was around him and... Uh, the late Brian Adams, Crush, uh, who I worked with a number of times, was a great guy. And, and uh, I never had a bad experience. Never once did I have a bad experience working for the uh, WWF. Now, I don't want to jump around too much, but something that I, I definitely wanted to make sure I got out there to you was something that was somewhat controversial, and so many people were mad about it. And I'm just, just like jumping way ahead here, but it's the uh, TNA gut check 
challenge that they had going on, and, mm-hmm. and everybody was pissed off about it. Can you just talk about what happened with TNA and the Gut Check Challenge? Uh, I think anybody that watched it saw what happened with the TNA Gut Check Challenge, right? <laughs> well, what really happened? I mean, you know, everyone was saying you should have been, you know, you should have won, you should have been sick, you should have had a contract. Uh huh. So what what do you think about that? Do you think you know? I guess it's somewhat laughable that no one knows the the real story of what really went what went on, you know, behind the scenes. Well, the the issue it's not well, it's not even an issue. The funny thing about the, the gut check thing is that the real story of what happened is far less interesting than what everyone's <laughs> imagination pretends happened, and and. I laugh about it because obviously I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't going to be good for me, but people forget that pro wrestling is a scripted form of entertainment, and Gut Check was supposed to be presented as a reality TV, which is scripted entertainment, portion of a pro wrestling show, which is scripted entertainment, and yet somehow millions of people were so upset and thought that I was wronged in some way without ever batting an eyelash to stop and say, wait a minute, this is scripted. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was what was supposed to happen, because that's what was written. Um, And while I don't, uh, while I never ever will um, be mad at anyone who supported my character and wanted to see that character featured in a more prominent role or in a bigger role or more often by TNA, that's simply not what was ever agreed to. So TNA presented me with a two-week opportunity on TV, and uh, I accepted a two-week offer on an offer to, to take advantage of that opportunity on TV for a couple of weeks, and that's what happened. Nothing more, nothing less. They lived, they lived up to, to every letter of the agreement that we made, and so did I. And here we are two years later still talking about it. So does that speak to what TNA should have done or should have wanted to do? Uh, maybe. But but I think the part of it that people never think about is for there to be an ongoing relationship, there has to be people that want an ongoing relationship. And that's, that's I'll let you read into that what you want. Okay, I was, was going to say, hmm, hmm, I guess maybe you didn't want an ongoing relationship. Or, you know, you could say the same thing for them, too, that they you only wanted could. you for, for two weeks as well. No, listen, I, I mean, I've, I've, anybody who knows me and has talked to me about this uh, at, any, at any level knows that I have so many friends that still work at TNA, both in front of and behind the cameras. And uh, I was happy to do the stint, uh, the, the gut check, and, and the following the subsequent week. Uh, and and would have been happy to do more things with TNA, um, to just being transparent. That would have been behind the scenes. But there were some there were some management changes. I think if you went back and looked at right around that time period, uh, some of the key players in production and uh, in in basically wrestling operations changed over at that period of time. So any real interest in in performing at a full time schedule for for TNA or for WWE. I think if you looked at my track record over the last 15 years and you see that there there was never a full-time 
uh, Scrap Iron Adam Pierce or whatever name it would have been given for any major company. That's that, There's a reason for that, and that's by design. So when I say that I really, honest to God, never had any interest in pursuing full-time on-camera, uh, you know, 300 days a year on the road for WWE or 200 days a year on the road working for TNA, that, that's that's the truth. That's never interested me. Um, something behind the camera with TNA was something that I was very much interested in and had several conversations about, and Gut Check was one component, a part of that. And then, as I mentioned, if you look back right around that time and look at some of the people who ended up leaving TNA from a management standpoint, it, it's it, the picture becomes a little bit more clear. Now, speaking of guys that left TNA management at, at one point or another, uh, somewhat of a mentor of yours. What's it like, you know, learning under the tutelage of Jim Cornette? Oh, man, uh, not somewhat of a mentor, absolutely a mentor. Um, man, I've been lucky to have been around Jimmy Cornette. Uh, he's been a manager of mine, obviously a mentor, uh, a right hand when I when I was running wrestling operations for Ring of Honor, and then obviously after when I left the company, he took over. Um He's uh, and he's polarizing, which is interesting. You'll get people and the people that I are friends of mine who either a absolutely love Jim Cornette or b absolutely hate Jim Cornette, and there doesn't seem to be anybody false in the middle of that. Uh, and you can count me as one of them that loves Jim Cornette. He's always done right by me. He's always been there for me when I needed him, uh, and likewise. And uh, I'm happy to call him a friend. Obviously a legend in our business and somebody I'm very fortunate to have spent a lot of time around. We here on the show are definitely Jim Cornette guys. Now, you mentioned Ring of Honor, and I just want to talk to you because you had many, many memorable moments as a wrestler in Ring of Honor. I mean, the Nigel McGuinness matches, the Brent Albright matches, the NWA title matches, the CGW feud was great. What are your feelings on you know your time spent with Ring of Honor? Oh, I loved it. Uh, that five-year period three of that as uh, exclusively as a talent and then uh, two years after that running the wrestling operations I think uh, account for a humongous part of why I am doing what I'm doing today uh, with WWE and NXT with especially without the last two years as uh, the the writer of the television the booker of of not only the TV, but of the, the house show schedule and uh, just kind of being a general babysitter of wrestling talent and learning how to, and I don't want to use the word manipulate, but sometimes it, it, you have to, being able to manipulate uh, a, a locker room full of different egos and personalities and um, get you know, everybody rolling the boat in the same direction. I mean, without that experience, I'm in no way qualified, I don't think, anyway, to be doing what I'm doing today. So, I mean, I count my time as NBA champion and my time as uh, involved with Ring of Honor, but more importantly than just involvement, running the wrestling operations is two keys in, in pushing my development as a wrestling talent, not just in the ring, but all the way around uh, in the direction that it would need to be to have the kind of career that I think I'm going to end up having. So I'm I'm grateful every day for it, every day for it. Do you like the booking aspect, or you're more, you know, were you more interested in ring at that point? 
Um, you know, I think it, once I took the job, it, it, it became very evident to me really quickly that in order to solidify a measure of respect from the 25 guys that I had under contract, uh, that I needed to remove myself as a talent, which I did uh, almost immediately. Uh, I think I had four matches in Ring of Honor while I was the one uh, writing the show. So, um, obviously, w- when you have that level of responsibility and you're in your basically life and death, uh, you know, for for what amounts to 25 guys' paychecks. Um, it requires a certain level of attention to things that you may not have otherwise had. Uh, you know, as a talent, it was very easy for me to want to rush through the show, get done with my match, and find the nearest bar. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that changes when you have so much other stuff on your plate. Um, and, and I love both aspects of, of, of wrestling. Uh, I think I've grown since having that first taste in 2008 of of the other side of the business, I've grown to really appreciate and fall in love with that and have developed an an incredible passion for that, which I think speaks to what I'm doing now. Um, But you never, ever, ever lose the itch to put your boots on, that's for sure. Now, this might be a sore subject, but the reason you left the exit from ROH, was that a a firing or or was it something mutual? That was 100% a firing. (laughs) <laughs> and it's not a sore subject at all, actually. Uh, it's uh, Carrie Silken, who owned the company at that time, is a dear friend of mine then and now and always will be. Best boss I ever had. He fired me twice. I was shooting for a third time. Uh, and then this thing with WWE rolled around. But, no, uh, you know, to to go back to that place, and I think someday Carrie, I think hopefully – if I'm him anyway, I'd, I'd write a book, uh, just just the experiences that he has. And, and I've said this publicly before, and I'll say it to you guys as well. He does not get the credit that he deserves from anybody for being the sole person with the sole wallet that kept Ring of Honor afloat for a decade. He was the one writing the checks at the end of the month. I would field the phone calls from him when it was time to pay the American Express account every month. Uh, and it was it was tumultuous. Uh, it was it was painful at times. But this man had such a passion, not just for the brand Ring of Honor, but an emotional investment into the lives of everyone that was under contract, myself included, that he went to his own financial detriment to make sure that we all had a paycheck and that we all the next town to go to and that in a lot of ways we all had a future that we could work towards. And, and when you look at the list of names that have gone through that locker room uh, from from inception up to now, every single solitary one of them, myself included, owes a debt of gratitude to Kerry Silken. And uh, I don't know that I or anyone, if they're being honest with themselves, will ever have the means to repay that. Wow, well said. What was it like when you came back um, a, a few months ago when you wrestled your last match for Ring of Honor? That was awesome. Uh, and that was a long time coming. Um, you know, the reason that I left Ring of Honor to begin with had virtually nothing to do with the wrestling side of the operation and everything to do with um, my, uh, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to put this, my outward discontent with how some of the uh, business operations of the company were handled. 
So I don't know if that dispels any rumors for you or whatnot, but no, me leaving Ring of Honor had nothing to do with what was happening between the ropes. Um, so to go back, and you notice that didn't happen until after the company was sold, so that can kind of, if you, if you can do any kind of easy mathematics, you can kind of see, you know, the, certain people had to be gone from the company in order for me to come back. And once they were gone and out of the picture and weren't going to be around and uh, weren't going to threaten to sue people, then... Uh, it was happy to go home. Ring of Honor will always be home uh, for me. So to to go back this past summer, and especially in Milwaukee and Chicago, which are two of my favorite towns ever to perform in, and uh, to have that kind of reception and welcome back feel, and and again, it's like it's like going home. It was great. And one thing that we have to say about you, you're definitely a legend. We've had a few guests on the show, specifically mention you and legend in the same sentence, and then. Um, the quote that I got from you, but it's actually from Les Thatcher, is that you are timeless. Do you consider yourself a legend? And one thing I'm always curious is, are, all your old school, what does that mean to you? Great question. I mean, I think to answer the first part of that, how pompous would somebody have to be if they said, absolutely, I consider myself to be a legend? What, I mean, what kind of <laughs> asshole actually says that? <laughs> if I can say asshole on the air. Uh, so, no. Uh, it's ludicrous to me. You know, it's like... It's like somebody saying, "Hey, here's a plaque, and now you're you're in the the, the National Wrestling Alliance Hall of Fame, uh, and you've been the champion five times and longer than than everybody that isn't um, Luthez and Jeff Jarrett and Flair, uh, and I'd have to go back and look at, at Harley Race. I mean, it's just ridiculous. All of this stuff is ridiculous to me, um, and I chalk it up to being." in the right place at the right time and in front of the right people. And, and it's kind of been my mantra, I think, uh, at least uh, in the last five years. It really is cliche as it sounds. It's all about working hard, treating people fairly, and going about a course of action that allows you to earn respect from people. And I, and I think I've done that. Uh, and a lot of that credit, I think, goes to my mom and dad who raised me the right way and, and my Chicago upbringing and my collar's blue, even if I'm wearing a suit. Uh, you know, I bring my lunch pill to work, but um, yeah, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. My legend, I, I don't even know what that means. And I don't. And the second part of the question, I don't know what old school means either. What does that actually mean? <laughs> I don't know, but it sounds good. I guess, but if you ask the young guys, I've uh, I've had younger wrestlers say to me, "Ah, you're just that's that's you're just old school." Like in some in some way, that must be a negative. I don't know what I, I'm not sure what old school means. I've had people say, "Well, you know, uh, when wrestling was good." Well, if that if I do if I do wrestling how wrestling was when wrestling was good, then I'm absolutely old school. But if it's somehow a negative, then I'm not old school. I don't know what that means. Well, to me, old school you you think of um, you think of Ric Flair, you think of um, you know the, the great. You almost think of like Jerry Lawler brawling or you know like the good old days. You, know, you wish that more guys were old school like you. Well, well then, fuck! I'm old school. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I'm always curious of is, you know, when you interview guys of your magnitude, is what do you consider to be, you know, your best match, or what's your favorite match? Yeah, I like favorite better than best, and I get this question periodically. And, and the the reason I don't like saying this is my best match is because I am one of these guys 
that absolutely can't stand watching any of my matches. And the reason for that is I will sit there and pick apart and, and say, ah, oh, you idiot, why didn't you do this? Or you that could have been better. I'm always almost incessantly meticulous in tearing myself apart, uh, which I don't seem to do to anybody that I'm training, which I don't know why. I hold myself to a different degree, I think. But uh, my favorite match, I mean, and there's a bunch of them, but I think the ones that really stand out uh, to me, Ring of Honor Death Before Dishonor 6, in uh, what year was that? 2007, 2008, with an NWA title match in New York City, I had with Brent Albright, where he beat me for the title, uh, and it was just a great crowd, a great energy in that room that night, uh, and even the things that Brent and I screwed up in the match seemed to work out better than the things that we had conceptualized ahead of time, uh, and it was it it culminated in a hell of a reaction for him winning the championship. It always that match always stands out. I think that. Even with its flaws, it's my favorite. Do you have a favorite opponent? Yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. Coco is at the top of that list. Uh, Brent Albright's on that list. Blue Demon Jr.'s on that list. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, Gunner from TNA, formerly known as Phil Shatter's on that list. Ace Steel, one of my initial tra- trainers, is on that list. Uh, Brian Adams' crush is on that list, and those those are off the top of my head. But I, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of really really great guys. Now in the wrestling business, they say never say never, and you never truly retire because you can always come out of retirement. I agree. But but are you gonna stay retired, or you, or you know should we should we you know go by the Terry Funk mantra? You never really retired. Uh, my friend, my dear friend Nick Dinsmore, who many, many people know better as Eugene from WWE, once said to me, wrestlers don't retire, they stop getting themselves booked, um, which I agree with. And that's why I've never used the word retire. I just think it's foolish. Um, as I mentioned, I, I don't think I'll ever not have the itch to put my boots on, not have the itch to get in the ring, and thankfully what I'm doing now allows me to do that, just not, you know, in front of hundreds and thousands of people. I get to do it in, in front of eager eyes and, and uh, people that are absorbing and learning the business, and, and uh, in many ways that's more gratifying, uh, having not to get on a plane every three days, every four days, is something that I'm absolutely enjoying, and if I never have to travel like I was doing in the past, that will be awesome. Um, but to say that I'm never going to put my boots on and never going to have a match again, I think that's foolish. I I I, I can't imagine never doing it again. Uh, it just has to be the right situation. Now you've wrestled for the WWF, ROH, PWG, Championship Wrestling of Hollywood, obviously the NWA. You were in the W Power Plant. You've been there. You've done that. You've been all over the world. But what would you say was your lasting legacy on the wrestling business? Boy, I hate that question. Uh, and, and, and no offense to you, but Sorry, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't. I never have a good answer for that. I don't know how to answer that because I don't think ultimately that we, the individual, are the ones that come up with what our legacy is. You know, I think, uh, you know, in my case, I'm, and I said it a minute ago, I'm a guy that came to work every day, and and uh, particularly as NWA champion, tried to live up to a standard that was set decades before me by guys like Harley Race and Jack Briscoe and Ric Flair and Terry Funk, and the list goes on and on in that regard. Um, And and if I was able to sniff uh, 
any semblance of of what they were and what they meant to that championship, then I think I'd, I I think I did them proud. But in terms of of what my legacy is, God, I don't know. I mean, I'm not done yet. I I think I still have uh, a long road to hoe in in, uh, in terms of of my relationship with WWE and, and NXT, and and I think ultimately at the end of the, this whole thing, whenever that ends up being, whatever I do between now and my last days involved with that will probably end up uh, more relevant to anything that I did inside the ring. But I guess time will tell. Now, if you could go back and almost be a booker again and be a fantasy booker for yourself, what would your dream match be? Oh, man, anything anything involving Bobby Heenan. Uh, <laughs> so whether I'm, I'm a baby face uh, and, and I'm... I've got five minutes with Bobby because I beat his charge, or he's managing me, or working at a broadcast table somewhere. Um, I'm such a fan of Bobby Heenan in all his incarnations as a wrestler, as a manager, and of course as a mouthpiece behind a microphone. Um, for my money, I don't know that I have ever seen anyone better or better suited for our craft than the uh, the incredible Bobby Heenan. And he's somebody that uh, not only have I come to admire, but I'm very honored to have made his acquaintance over time. So, yeah, anything involving him. I definitely think that would have been a great uh, great pairing, to say the least. And actually, and before we let you go, I think I might have pinpointed the match and what we were talking about earlier with your time in the WWF. Would it be March 31st, 1997, Savio Vega and Crush versus Rod Bell and Adam O'Brien? That sounds like the one. Peoria Civic Center, Peoria, Illinois. Nice. That's the one. That's, uh, that's pretty good. How about, really quick before we let you go, Adam O'Brien, where did that come from? Yeah, somebody asked me that, I don't know, about six months ago. I wrote this long blog on my Facebook page about it. Because uh, my boots, for the longest time, had AP on them because my name, the name given to me by my parents, the name on my driver's license is Adam Pierce. So that's because I've never been that creative. I can never think of a cool wrestling name. I just work as Adam Pierce until I stole the uh, the nickname Scrap Iron to kind of tack onto it. But we were riding from uh, right around O'Hare, I think, is where I met up with the guys that were driving to Peoria, and we were heading down to the building, and, and they already had their kind of established WWF TV names. Uh, my my very first trainer, Sonny Rogers, worked as Sonny Rogers because he had worked for Vern Gagne and all over the place as Sonny Rogers, so that was his name on WWF TV. And my other trainer, Randy Ritchie, worked as Jerry Fox on WWF programming, so they had their names, and they were kind of trying to figure out, you know, what well, what's a kid's name going to be? And I was like, well, it says AP on my boots. Why not just call me Adam Pierce? I mean, that's my name. Apparently that wasn't good enough. Uh, but they pulled off the freeway and called perennial kind of founding father of of, uh, of the Midwest at that point, Tom Stone. If you ever remember Tom Rocky Stone from AWA and WWF lore uh, job matches for years and years and years, they called they called Stone, and Stone said, he's O'Brien, his name is Adam O'Brien. And I was like, guys, it says AP on my boots, I'm going to look like an idiot. And it really didn't matter what I thought, because I was an 18-year-old kid lucky to be going to work on TV when... <laughs> when guys hadn't really done that at that time, at that age anyway. So Adam O'Brien, it was my name because that's what I was told. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's fantastic. And you were working with Brian Adams, just like you had credited as uh, 
as one of your favorites to work with, so that's an, uh, an awesome end. And again, congratulations on the NWA Hall of Fame. Well-deserved. And uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This was awesome. We really uh, appreciate it. But please uh, let us know where we can find Adam Pierce. You know, these days, uh, when it's not coaching Little League for my kid, you could uh, keep up to keep up with my my idiocy on on Twitter. Uh, that scrap that AAP. Oh, and I I don't know what the URL is. I think it's official Adam Pierce on Facebook. If you search that, you'll find out what I'm up to, uh, which isn't a whole hell of a lot these days, other than uh, what you see me doing and what's going on down at NXT. Awesome. Well. Continued success, and uh, and thank you again. I appreciate it very much, guys. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yes, totally will. Whenever uh, whenever we can, we'll sync up again. It'll be fantastic. Thank you. You got it, guys. Thanks for the time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.